At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome to the Twisted Mirror podcast. Some news before we start. If you go to the twistedmirrorpodcast.com, you can now sign up for my email list. For the foreseeable future, I'm just sending out an email when I publish a new episode with some thoughts and background on the story. As the podcast grows, I may send out information I think is important and relevant to those who like to stare into the mirror. You can follow The Twisted Mirror on Instagram, Facebook, or TikTok. Links are in the show notes. Speaking of the show notes, I used many different articles to piece together the events of this episode. You can also find all those linked in the show notes, should you be intrigued to learn more. I probably should start suggesting this in every episode, but headphones will always provide the best listening experience, especially if you enjoy the ambient effects. If you're mostly about the story, then it's probably not as big of a deal. If you've been enjoying The Twisted Mirror, please rate and review where you can. And please continue to share the podcast with lovers of the macabre. Growing the show will allow me to put more time into writing and producing episodes. Now, on to Twisted Mirror's second true horror episode. Sometimes, the reflection you see in the Twisted Mirror looks just like yours. But there's something different. Something you can't put your finger on. It seems to be observing you just as much as you are observing it. You know, deep down inside, it's not your true reflection. It's the other world staring back. And to those eyes, it's our world that's warped and full of inexplicable terrors. You are now staring into the twisted mirror. Cancer. It's a word that stirs instant dread upon its mention. The body turns on itself, malignancy waging war on its host. Not only is it the possibility of death that draws terror, but that most times, in order to survive this assault, one must engage in a painful battle. Where the patient's own body becomes collateral damage during an offensive of toxic drugs and radiation. After all, cancer usually sparks from the very cells that keep us alive with a delicate balance of reproduction and apoptosis. Cancer is a betrayal of our own flesh and blood. Select cells turn from faithful workers to rogue agents. They form a mutiny, hijacking their host so that the most common treatment we have now is akin to shooting a cannon at a vessel, hoping the defectors on board will drown before taking the entire ship and the remaining faithful crew with them. But cancer isn't anything new. To be human is to have known someone afflicted. And if you are so unlucky, you receive the terrible diagnosis. Turn to the professionals and hope beyond all hope, they can guide you to victory. But what if the very people who desperately race to save you find themselves suddenly sick in your very presence? What if one person's personal horror story spreads so that an assault from one's own body is no longer exclusively aimed at a single host, but a room full of people? Or what if there is an even more twisted situation at hand? That the very place you turn to in your most desperate time of need betrays you, blaming you for their incompetence and negligence, letting you take the blame 
so that your legacy, despite being labeled by those who knew and loved you as a selfless and kind mother who had fallen on hard times, is to be called the toxic lady. This is the story of the death of Gloria Ramirez. On the night of February 19th, 1994, Gloria Ramirez was rushed to Riverside General Hospital by paramedics. Just six weeks prior, the 31-year-old single mother of two was diagnosed with advanced cervical cancer. Though it had spread to other parts of her body, it was not believed to be fatal, according to her sister. Gloria was unemployed and without health insurance, making an already frightening and stressful diagnosis an even greater battle. There isn't much publicly stated about what treatment she was able to pursue, but her sister is quoted as saying she believed Gloria was receiving chemotherapy. Knowing the inequities in the United States healthcare system and what you will later learn about Riverside General, it is not a great leap to say she may not have been receiving the optimum level of care in comparison to someone with more resources. Little is publicly known about the specifics of what transpired in those six weeks between her diagnosis and the night of February 19th. It appears she kept much of her frightening ordeal to herself, perhaps in an effort to keep her loved ones from worrying. But Gloria found herself feeling extremely ill with nausea and vomiting all day. When her symptoms escalated, her boyfriend called 911 for an ambulance sometime after 8 p.m. In the ambulance, she experienced difficulty breathing and an erratic heartbeat. While conscious, she seemed to be going in and out of states of delirium. Upon her arrival to Riverside General Hospital, she was immediately taken back, and the medical team worked to stabilize her. First, they attempted a cocktail of sedatives and other drugs to try and stabilize her. However, she did not respond well, and her condition began to deteriorate rapidly. Next, the staff moved on to defibrillation in hopes of normalizing her heartbeat. This is when things went from a scary, albeit somewhat typical medical emergency, to a terrifying and downright bizarre mystery. Before Gloria's arrival, Riverside General Hospital's reputation had taken some serious hits. In 1989, according to an LA Times article, Riverside General Hospital was accused by state health officials of improperly medicating and underfeeding sick patients, as well as violating standard hospital practices necessary to prevent infection and assure quality medical care. The hospital came under suspicion after an analysis of Medicare mortality data ranked Riverside General among the bottom 50 of 5,577 hospitals nationwide. Instances were recorded of patients being administered medication they were allergic to or flat out being given the wrong prescription. The nutritional needs of some high-risk patients were not being met as staff failed to record weights and patient food intake. Specifically, in one instance, a 74-year-old tube-fed patient went 11 consecutive days without their minimum daily required nutrition. The nightmare care doesn't stop there. The facility stocked carts with outdated medication Narcotics were often left out, unlocked in publicly accessible areas, and housekeeping was insufficient. Kitchens were greasy and mildew-ridden. Dusty fans swirled over food prep areas. Food prep equipment was caked with old foods and drawers and crusted shut. Perhaps most frightening of all, though admittedly starving, helpless 74-year-olds might be tough to beat, 
there was a systemic lack of documentation. No paper trails regarding whether doctors' orders were carried out. In one case, two women were sterilized without valid consents on file. Documentation on whether adverse effects in surgery or anesthesiology were ever investigated was simply never filed. Do you remember what you ate last Tuesday for lunch? The exact location of your house keys on May 22nd, 2021 at 11.35 a.m.? Unless you're Mary Lou Henner? Probably not. Documentation is critical in busy hospitals, where patients are being seen for a number of serious and complicated issues by several different people. Without documentation, proper continuity of care is compromised. In other words, if something wasn't documented, for all intents and purposes, it didn't happen. This could lead to incidents like patients being given medication they're allergic to, overdosed, or in even more extreme cases, patients receiving incorrect surgeries. Kevin Cohen, the administrator at Riverside General, defended the hospital, calling the analysis flawed, though I could not specifically find exactly how he supported this claim. In his defense, this was a county hospital, built in 1918. It had outgrown its space and had spilled over into a hodgepodge of Quonset huts and trailers. For those of you unfamiliar with Quonset huts, they are large dome-shaped corrugated metal shelters, usually erected during disasters. While Cohen promised to address a large percentage of the deficiencies, he admitted that, ultimately, the facilities were antiquated and overrun. They had staffing shortages, and the county had borrowed $210 million to build a new hospital, which meant Riverside General was at the whims of county supervisors, who had to decide between how much they wanted to invest in an old, soon-to-be-defunct hospital and the shiny new one being built to replace it. In the meantime, the hospital had done some shoddy remodeling, and the infants in the newborn ICU would simply have to deal with being crammed into an inadequate space, while a portion of the unit had been blocked off for storage. Gloria had entered the ER at Riverside General Hospital in February of 1994, some years after the report. But if you think I'm going to tell you that the hospital turned around and became the shining example of patient safety, quality assurance, well then, you'll have to cool out with that whole faith in humanity stuff. In April 1993, less than a year before Gloria's ER trip, sewer gas from a drain permeated into the first floor emergency room. And just weeks before Gloria entered the ER on that fateful night, a 52-year-old cancer patient had experienced two separate instances of encountering a noxious fume so strong that he vomited while his wife fled the room for help. A nurse told him it was nothing unusual, that other nurses in the floors above dumped various liquids into the plumbing system. I heard the sink gurgling and then there was this horrible smell. It was an awful smell. A toxic smell. And I knew if I stayed in the room any longer, I'd get sick. Jenny Weiss, the wife of the patient, said to an LA Times reporter, throughout the early 90s, the hospital was cited multiple times for improper disposal of chemicals, improper procedures handling a toxic gas used for sterilizing equipment, oh, and of course, improper record-keeping of annual equipment inspections. Riverside General was not the type of hospital you trust to care for grandma or even a young 31-year-old cancer patient like Gloria, if you had a choice. But Gloria didn't have a choice. She was uninsured in a state of crisis 
and needed urgent help. As the staff attempted defibrillation, some of them noticed something unusual when they ripped her shirt open, an oily sheen coating her skin. Most definitely not sweat, but something described as a film. Some also noticed a smell emanating from her breath, described as both sweet and garlicky. Nurse Susan Kane began to draw blood from Gloria for testing. That's when she noticed an ammonia-like smell coming from the vial. Kane handed the vial to respiratory therapist Maureen Welch, who sniffed it, expecting the typical putrid odor that can come from a chemo patient's blood, which was horrifying news to me. But Welch also smelled ammonia. Welch then handed it to resident doctor Julie Gorchinsky. Nurse Kane began to feel lightheaded and wobble towards the door. She's going down, a voice shouted. Dr. Umberto Ochoa, who was in charge of the ER and who said he did not smell the ammonia, but did see the crystals or particles others eventually claimed to see floating in the vial, caught Kane and lowered her to the floor. She complained of her face burning. In an interview with 2020, Dr. Gorchinsky recounted how shortly after asking Nurse Kane to administer an IV, she first noticed the strong ammonia-like odor wafting in the air surrounding Gloria. She stepped to the other side of the room, feeling lightheaded. When the vial of blood was eventually passed to her, trying to find the source of the odor, she smelled the vial up close. According to other sources, this is when she noticed the manila-colored particles floating in the blood. As Nurse Kane fainted, Dr. Gorchinsky began to feel ill and left the room to collect herself at the nurse's station. She then collapsed into convulsions, even requiring medical assistance to breathe. Welch, the respiratory therapist, was the third to pass out in quick succession. When she later awoke, she claimed to have no control of her limbs. With the strange collection of odors and medical professionals dropping all around Gloria, the hospital had to work fast to remove patients, fearing some sort of toxic event was occurring in that room. Or even more concerningly, from Gloria herself. As staff scrambled to evacuate patients to the parking lot, many were growing faint. However, not all did, and the hospital maintained that Gloria remained under constant care through the confusion and chaos. Out in the parking lot, staff scrambled in the dark under the glow of lamps to treat patients, including some of their colleagues. Clothes were stripped and bagged as they believed a chemical agent could be causing the sudden mass illness. Other nurses and staff who went back in to assist reported similar symptoms of burning skin, trouble breathing, and some also found themselves incapable of going on, they themselves becoming the next patient at the makeshift parking lot ER. Inside the ER, a skeleton crew, including Dr. Ochoa, continued to administer shocks and various medications in the fight to keep Gloria alive. However, at 8.50 p.m., a mere 35 minutes after Gloria's estimated arrival to the ER, she was pronounced dead. Of the 37 staff members in the ER, 23 reported feeling one of the many symptoms reported of lightheadedness burning skin, difficulty breathing, or loss of consciousness. Five of those 23 were hospitalized. 
Though most made a quick recovery, Dr. Gorchinsky spent two weeks in intensive care, where in addition to apnea, which is the temporary cessation of breathing, she suffered from hepatitis, pancreatitis, and avascular necrosis of her knees. The latter is a condition in which bone tissue is deprived of oxygen and begins to die. This left her in crutches for months. While still in the hospital, this previously healthy young woman could barely raise her voice above a whisper and told a reporter that while she was on the mend, something like a trip to the restroom exhausted her. Gloria, who just six weeks previously learned of her cancer and had told family she was assured her condition was not fatal, lay dead in an isolated room. Her body now considered an environmental hazard. What could have caused such a sudden and severe onset of symptoms? What could have triggered a room full of hardened nurses and doctors who had seen it all working in an underfunded county hospital to collapse one after the other? Inexplicably, it appeared that it was the patient herself, Gloria Ramirez, who was the source of the toxic fumes, though that seemed impossible. People don't just suddenly turn into chemical weapons, even those under chemo. And the EMTs who had transported her in the ambulance were just fine. Her boyfriend was fine. So what could have happened in the ER in less than 35 minutes to a woman to make her very physical presence toxic? What chemical reaction could have occurred to convert the typical inert gases within the human body to become an invisible cloud of noxious fumes? Or were there any fumes at all? Perhaps this was a case of mass hysteria, a brew of overworked medical staff who had simply succumbed to the stresses of working in a hospital on the verge of collapse. It was now on the county of Riverside to get to the bottom of the situation. Just a few hours later, the county's hazmat team arrived, fully suited, just like a scene from Outbreak, expecting to find the usual suspect, sewer gas. Sound familiar? Though the name just elicits the stench of rotten eggs, at high concentrations, Sewer gas is extremely dangerous and can kill within a few inhales. They searched for other commonly known hazardous chemicals as well, but they came up with nothing. This meant that the next step would be an autopsy, six days after the incident. But this would be no ordinary autopsy. If Gloria was emitting dangerous chemicals, then entering a room with her would be a hazard. And so, the city built a makeshift chamber to isolate Gloria's corpse. Examiners went in with their puffy hazmat suits and collected tissue and blood samples and stored her body in an aluminum box. The handling of the investigation was plagued by confusion, doublespeak, and secrecy. After the initial autopsy, the coroner's office declared that Gloria had not died from natural causes. But in a final press conference, two months and three total autopsies later, he had changed his tune to say she did die of complications from her cervical cancer. When pressed as to what precipitated the change, he could not give a clear answer. Just a week before the press conference, the county announced they had lost the syringe used to draw blood in the emergency room. Yes, the one in which several staff had claimed to see some sort of debris described as crystals or manila-colored flecks 
Perhaps in the chaos of the ER, it was simply lost, though others insist on more suspicious reasons. Regardless of how it disappeared, it was a vital clue that was now gone. The third autopsy, obtained and paid for by Gloria's family, only done so after court order since the county did not want to give access to Gloria's body, citing that it could be a hazard, came to the conclusion that she did not die of natural causes. Though the body they received was decomposing and missing her heart at that point. Gloria's family was furious. They felt their beloved mother's body was treated as a piece of toxic waste. They had to fight just to have her body released for a proper burial. And the insult added to injury was that this woman, a beloved mother, sister, and girlfriend, who was quoted as being a sweet, uplifting individual, was reduced to a toxic monster by the hospital, county, and even the press. Somewhere along the line being dubbed as the toxic lady. But what was more likely, they asked, that an average woman dealing with a medical condition had turned into some sort of chemical bomb that she had ingested or applied toxic materials, bringing them with her to the hospital to take some staff down as she fought for her life? Or that an underfunded hospital with a long history of carelessness, OSHA violations, noxious fumes and mishandling of hazardous chemicals had actually been the source of fumes so toxic they stopped the breathing of more than one member of its staff? Theories abound for what caused the odd and terrifying events in the ER. From the classic, it was all in your head, to the downright scandalous. We'll start with what the county determined, as it's pretty straightforward. Since they claimed they could not find any toxins in Gloria's body, and that she had simply died from heart and kidney complications from cancer, then it had to have been imagined. The smells, the burning, the loss of balance, the convulsions, the complete stoppage of breathing, the foreign bodies floating in the syringe. Every single one of those things was imagined by 23 healthcare professionals. Could Gloria have rubbed some sort of pungent remedy on her body? There was that oily sheen they saw in her skin after all. Maybe that triggered a response in Dr. Kane. Some people are very sensitive to smells after all. Then seeing her reaction, like a thought virus, each subsequent member of the staff began to believe that they too were under some sort of chemical attack. There have been rare instances of mass delusions. Perhaps the stress of working in this particular ER had taken its toll. Further pointing to a psychosomatic illness was that some of the staff did not smell the odor. Some did not fall ill. But some of the symptoms, particularly those of Dr. Gruchinsky, were so severe that surely even psychosis couldn't dissolve the bone in her knee. Some argue that a condition like avascular necrosis could have been long in the making and simply discovered during her hospitalization. But what about her and at least one other nurse who suffered from apnea and needed assistance breathing? What about the other symptoms Dr. Gruchinsky suffered, such as hepatitis and pancreatitis? Hospitals, particularly this one, are full of all kinds of smells. Nurses and doctors deal with and are exposed to fecal matter, bodily fluids, medications, strong cleaning chemicals, and countless other odors. Surely, a hint of sweet garlic and ammonia wouldn't have sent them off the deep end. Speaking of that sweet garlic odor, it is possible that could have simply been a case of Gloria's blood sugar levels spiking 
as her organs struggle to function. Ammonia-like breath can be a symptom of chronic kidney issues as well. Garlic, however, is more of a mystery in the case of a woman who had been very ill and was likely not eating that day. The family and the medical staff seem to agree on this, that this shared delusion explanation was a convenient way to sweep things under the rug, a way to shift the blame onto both Gloria and the staff, while the common denominator, the hospital, just silently threw their hands up and slipped out the back door, whether it be due to the county's inability to come up with a real answer or even something more nefarious as covering up malfeasance. Another theory ties into the hospital's shady reputation, but not in the way one might think. Rumors began to spread that employees in the hospital were supplying or housing the ingredients for meth, a drug that was running rampant in the area. It seems wildly outrageous and straight out of an episode of Breaking Bad. Surely, even the most disgruntled employees could not pull off being part of a secret meth production ring. However, if there was a hospital where this could happen, Riverside General seemed to be the prime candidate, with its careless handling of materials, suspicious smells wafting through the vents, lack of detailed record-keeping, which means certain ingredients or medicines could go missing and perhaps not be noticed as quickly as in a hospital with meticulous notes. The most common theory regarding this is that her IV bag could have contained meth or some sort of precursor to meth instead of saline. That one of those IV bags meant to smuggle drugs was instead inserted into Gloria's veins and started a horrible chain reaction. Chemicals to produce meth are extremely toxic. No doubt you've heard of the stories of families who unwittingly purchased a former meth house, only to come down with a host of mysterious symptoms, their only recourse being to flee or tear down the house to the studs and rebuild. For a conspiracy of that level to be run within a busy hospital, and still, all these years later, not one person coming out who claimed to witness anything remotely suspicious makes this theory seem as convenient as the mass delusion. Surely in a crowded hospital, spilling over to quonsets and trailers, using infant ICUs as storage closets, it would be pretty hard to sneak a meth operation without at least one ethical staff member noticing. The next theory? seems to have the most historical evidence pointing towards it. That it almost seems too obvious. That the hospital itself released toxic fumes into the room. Or in some other capacity, the hospital's negligence caused chemicals to mingle with Gloria's blood to create some sort of new chemical reaction that sickened the staff. Just months before her death, a patient had smelled fumes so disgusting he vomited on himself, and his healthy wife fled the room, convinced she'd become ill too. Other incidents had occurred of dangerous chemicals being inhaled by patients or staff. Add that to the list of chemicals being mishandled and sent into the hospital plumbing, or machines leaking toxic gas. Is it such a stretch that these factors collided to cause the sudden illness that occurred in the room? Could they have even hasten Gloria's demise? After all, Gloria's cancer was supposedly non-fatal, and it seemed nothing the staff did could stabilize her, even for a moment. Were they working against a toxin they were not aware of, one the hospital itself was unwittingly administering? There isn't much detail out there about Gloria's cancer. In fact, everything I could find is precipitated by the family believed or Gloria told so-and-so. It appears Gloria was a kind and caring person, one who never wanted to burden people with worry. I can't find a source that says with 100% certainty that Gloria was in fact undergoing chemo or that anyone had gone with her to a doctor's visit. 
That doesn't mean those things didn't happen, but for a case that has so much information about what transpired in the ER, it seems little is known about Gloria's condition in those six weeks. Something I haven't seen presented in my research is the possibility that Gloria, in an effort to remain strong for her family and not add to their emotional strife, may have not presented her circumstances as dire as they actually were. There's a number of possibilities. One, that she was certain the chemo would work and thus didn't want to discuss the true odds of her recovery. After all, I find it strange that the cancer is both described as advanced and non-fatal. I know cancer is complicated and varying, but those two terms, to me, seem to be at least a bit contradictory. Or what if, with her financial issues, her prognosis, due to lack of access to optimal treatment, meant that though it might be a non-fatal diagnosis for many, she could not get adequate treatment in time. Or even more simply, maybe she knew she was terminal and didn't have the heart to tell her loved ones. Countless scenarios here could be raised, ultimately pointing to the fact that perhaps her circumstances were more serious than she led her family to believe. And if so, maybe her severe symptoms and subsequent death that night was simply the cancer having run its course. But if she was being honest, if she was told that her chances of survival were strong, then her sudden death six weeks after her initial diagnosis does seem to contradict what she was told. And if the cancer was not fatal, or if she was told she had plenty of time left, then one could see why her family would believe that the events that occurred in the hospital that night accelerated Gloria's death. For what it's worth, her sister who arguably knew more about her those last six weeks than any journalist or podcast could, said, I honestly believe my sister may have lived if she hadn't gone into that emergency room that night. The final theory, and the one that is believed by most officials, while still quite controversial, goes back to the oily film seen on her skin. That as many cancer patients do, Gloria sought out some non-conventional treatments, and through a coincidental reaction, not any wrongdoing on the hospital or medical staff's fault, the salve on her body converted into a toxic gas. The Riverside Coroner's Office enlisted the help of Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory to do some forensic work of their own. After ruling out common chemicals and several red herrings, there was one chemical that stood out as unusual and not so easy to explain. Dimethyl sulfone, an industrial solvent that can also be produced by the body in trace amounts. However, Gloria's levels were unusually high. At first, the connection to the events and dimethyl sulfone were unclear. It's not the type of chemical that can trigger the events that occurred in the ER. However, after a closer look, a nuclear chemist, Pat Grant, was struck by how similar this compound was to another, dimethyl sulfoxide, or DMSO. The only difference being that the latter has one oxygen atom instead of two. While that sounds like a small difference, in chemistry, one atom can change everything. It got Grant thinking. See, DMSO was familiar to him because he had used it as a salve in his younger days as an athlete. Though it's marketed as a heavy degreaser, people had long used DMSO as an off-label remedy for achy muscles and joints. In a more diluted format, it is given for some very specific conditions, but most people use it purely as an underground remedy and they weren't using the diluted form cleared for human use with a doctor's prescription, but a 99% pure form that you'd find at Home Depot. Its popularity as a cult remedy spread, and health professionals were worried about its side effects 
until the FDA had to warn doctors in 1980 to counsel patients to stop using degreaser as a home remedy. And yet, still, neither DMSO or dimethyl sulfone could cause a mass illness like the one in the ER that night. DMSO's side effects were usually from long-term use and wouldn't vaporize to cause toxic fumes. So they racked their brains. How could this unusual substance in Gloria's blood make the leap? They made the leap from DMSO, one oxygen atom, and an off-label salve, to dimethyl sulfone, two oxygen atoms, and the industrial solvent found in oddly high levels in Gloria's blood, to dimethyl sulfate, which has four oxygen atoms and makes for a mean, nasty vapor. The symptoms of that vapor sure sounded familiar. Convulsions, delirium, paralysis, coma, and delayed damage to kidneys, liver, and heart, though nausea and vomiting aren't listed. While it can be used for some desired chemical reactions, it is essentially a chemical weapon. But that leap from one to two to four oxygen atoms needs to be accounted for, explained. How could Gloria rubbing some degreaser on her body turn her into a chemical weapon? Time to get your lab coats on. So here's what the folks at Livermore concluded after some testing. Gloria rubbed DMSO on her body, perhaps to deal with pain from cancer or chemo. Apparently, DMSO is funky and can account for that oily sheen on her skin and a garlicky odor. When Gloria was placed in the ambulance, her illness not related to the DMSO, but the cancer, they placed an oxygen mask on Gloria, flooding her blood with oxygen. Boom. A chemical reaction in her bloodstream added that extra oxygen molecule to create the dimethyl sulfone found in her blood. Combine that with a urinary blockage found during autopsy that prevented her body from efficiently flushing out toxins, and there's your source for unnaturally high levels of the compound. Oh, and when they tested this theory in a lab, they noticed that at room temperature, dimethyl sulfone formed crystals, much like the ones the medical staff have reported seeing in her blood. But something else had to have happened to take that compound and turn it into a killer vapor. Now, this is where things get purely theoretical. The scientists theorized that due to some unknown reason, the dimethyl sulfone started to break apart in her blood. Some of those parts linked up with readily available sulfates, all humans have in their bloodstream, and boom, another chemical reaction occurred to create the highly toxic dimethyl sulfate. But at body temperature, the compound was too unstable and broke back down to its smaller parts, hence why the EMTs didn't get sick. It wasn't until her blood was drawn and subsequently cooled down in the air-conditioned ER that the dimethyl sulfate found stability and tiny amounts began to vaporize. By all accounts, it wasn't until people started sniffing around that vial that people got sick. And it doesn't take much to get people very ill. Exact numbers vary in the literature, and much of it refers to animal exposure, but just a tiny amount, as in less than a gram in a square meter of air, can kill a person. The scientists theorized that some of the compound vaporized and the rest broke back down. It was like a silent assassin leaving hardly a trace of its existence by the time investigators started poking around. I found an interesting quote from a study on the deadly chemical that seems to support this. The ultimate metabolites in the human body are sulfate and carbon dioxide, which are excreted by the kidneys and released by the lungs, respectively. However, no urinary metabolites other than low levels of methanol have been reported. Case closed, right? Not quite. 
First, Gloria's family insists she didn't use DMSO. But let's say she managed to hide her use of greasy and smelly DMSO for a number of plausible reasons. Other scientists believe the theory is far-fetched. Dimethyl sulfone, the step between degreaser slash skin salve and the deadly vapor, wouldn't have broken down in her blood, according to some organic chemists. It's an industrial solvent that can handle up to 300 degrees before degrading. Without that breakdown, its parts don't get to attach to sulfates and become deadly fumes. They also argued the symptoms don't add up. Like many poisonous gases, irritation of mucous membranes, particularly of the eyes, is one of the first exposure symptoms, and no one reported that. Most of the other symptoms usually take hours to hit, not seconds or minutes. The scientists who did much of the DMSO research in the 60s all but called the theory silly and definitely called it a chemical impossibility. The scientist at the head of the theory at Livermore welcomed the critics and claimed he never declared this as the only true answer. The Riverside coroner used their findings to declare that it was the likely answer, but that wasn't Livermore's intention in reporting their findings. Defenders of the theory say that sometimes in a forensic analysis, you can't fit every peg in a hole. Chemicals act in weird and unexpected ways to us. Scientists have not or could not replicate every possible circumstance via experimentation, and thus have to rely on what chemists believe would happen based on what they already know of certain compounds. There simply hasn't been research on whether dimethyl sulfone could break down in human blood to create dimethyl sulfate. It's a hypothesis. So technically, it hasn't been proven, but it also hasn't been disproven. Livermore's findings are more like a game of Clue than catching the murderer in the act, where the team deduced a set of circumstances based on some clues. But instead of a wrench in a library, they had dimethyl sulfoxide in an ER. As of now, Gloria's case has been closed with no truly satisfactory answer, and there likely never will be. What we do know is that a young mother died that night, delirious and likely terrified as her heart skipped erratically. As she watched the people who were tasked to save her succumb to some mysterious agent lingering in the air, whether that agent be chemical or psychological. Her last moments were surrounded by confusion and chaos. Then, when she was gone, her body would be treated as if it was radioactive, investigated in secret. Her family finally given her decomposing body, only after fighting to give her a proper burial. Her identity would be replaced with the moniker the toxic lady. And for the medical professionals who had every intention of saving her, they suddenly found themselves under assault by an invisible attacker, randomly taking down colleague after colleague. Ultimately, they would be called hysterical by a county that many would agree botched their investigation on the matter. Their physical symptoms downplayed as psychosomatic. Most of the afflicted were women, I might add. But perhaps what makes this story most unsettling is how helpless we all are at the hospital. How at our most vulnerable, we trust these facilities to keep us safe. But inside those walls are humans just like us. Some of whom cut corners, become apathetic, disgruntled, overworked, or hide from accountability. How well-meaning professionals are worked to the bone so that the administration can save some dollars. And under all that pressure, one mistake can ruin or end someone's life. Any of us could be that unlucky patient. How your health outcomes can sometimes be as arbitrary as your zip code your employment status, or what family you were born into. Would Gloria have died had she had better health insurance? 
access to a state-of-the-art hospital, and not one that was falling apart with sewer gases leaking into rooms? We'll never know the answer to any of these questions. All we can be certain of is something scary and bizarre happened in that ER on February 19th, 1994. And since we don't know for sure what caused it, there's nothing to stop it from happening again. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading the airport, right? Yep, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. 